Welcome to the podcast. This is still Mike Carter. I played a whole selection because I like it so much. This show is going to be a little different. I'm going to play people and then you guess who you think they are. Won't that be fun? Well, it's better than just here's so-and-so and here's so-and-so and here's so-and-so. This one was going to be uh, the last in the jazz series about basically post bop into Miles Davis and a zillion other people. I've decided not to do it because it's it's it just kind of like it's so spread out with so many new musicians and so many new styles, kind of like the you know the 21 varieties of rock on the uh, Sirius Channel. So if you want to hear some Miles Davis, knock yourself out, go to Amazon, digital music, download some. But I, there's not really much to say about it except that it it wiped out bebop as a major style. But bebop was remained and even now is a has been a major influence. It's called the greatest influence in jazz. It probably is. This show will be about singers and as such will be the most difficult <laughs> to prepare for that I've done. When we talk about uh, good and bad in music, good and bad and beautiful and ugly are very relative terms. And this is because it's so subjective. When we talk about who's good and who's bad, it's subjective. Now, true, uh, critics we respect, people that, that kind of we, we think know what's going on, have a pretty solid list of, of the true greats like Ella Fitzgerald and, and Billie Holiday and so forth. But when we get into what we think is bad, it gets really 
uh, dicey because what we think is bad tends to be styles we, we don't care for, not the singers themselves. So if I say I don't like somebody, well, somebody else will say, wait a minute, that's, that's my favorite singer. A good example would be Nancy Wilson. She's extremely popular, was extremely popular in the, in the 60s and 70s, and I don't care for her for certain reasons. And uh, same thing with um, a lot of the rhythm and blues people like K-Star, and uh, I'd include Dinah Washington in that loosely. It's just a style I don't care for, the whole 50s deal. But that doesn't mean or give me the right to say these guys are lousy. <laughs> it's just it's subjective again. I can tell you who I do like, so what I'm going to do is try to, instead of saying good, bad, good, bad, I'm going to try to uh, delineate the styles of these people, the vibrato, or the phrasing, and so forth, and approach it that way without hopefully offending anybody's sense of taste in singers. And this is going to be very difficult to do, but I'm going to give it a shot. One more thing, kind of a caveat, I grew up just the opposite that what I liked was good, what I what I didn't like was bad. And I got that from my dad. And luckily after a couple decades, I got past it and realized that a lot of it was me and not out there, but in myself. And yes, I'm still a musical snob, but I don't project that. I try not to project that on other people. If you like it, great, knock yourself out and go listen to it. I'll listen to what I like. And the world of listening to music remains at peace. Despite what I said earlier about guessing who the singer is, this will be the one exception, Louis Armstrong, because I want to say some things about him. Louis Armstrong's singing was nearly as influential as his trumpet playing, his style. I'm going to read something from not everybody's favorite source, but it's a good source, Wikipedia. Uh, some stuff relating to Bing Crosby. His influence upon Crosby is particularly important with regard to the subsequent development of popular music. Crosby admired and copied Armstrong, as is evident on many of his early recordings, notably Just One More Chance, 1931. The New Grove Dictionary of Jazz describes Crosby's debt to Armstrong in precise detail, although it does not acknowledge Armstrong by name. Crosby was important in introducing into the mainstream of popular singing an Afro-American concept of song as a lyrical extension of speech. His techniques, easing the weight of the breath on the vocal cords, passing into a head voice at a low register, using forward production to aid distinct enunciation, singing on consonants, a practice of black singers, and making discreet use of different techniques to emphasize the text were emulated by nearly all later popular singers. And that's something that is new to me, uh, but it goes on to say that all the popular music through God knows when, the 60s, I guess, uh, were influenced and caused by and a result of Louis Armstrong's revolutionary and unique way of singing. He sang the way he played trumpet. You could take his singing, his syllables, and transpose them somehow for trumpet, and it would be very close to the way he actually played trumpet, which was also revolutionary. Here is a very early recording, late 1920s, I believe, uh, the first recording of Armstrong singing, and the song's called Heebie Jeebies. And I guess the, the story is that he was singing the song, dropped his music on the floor, the production manager said, keep singing, keep singing. So he put in just syllables, which is known as scatting, which is one of the few things that people, the popular, the masses, <laughs> sorry, 
uh, rave about when they hear Ella Fitzgerald. They just stare and wonder, how does she do that? You know, missing how great she is. They just they, they catch, catch up on the, on the scatting. Wow, how does she do that? That's, that is so cool. Anyway, here's heebie-jeebies from, let's say 1928. I don't know, somewhere around there. Before we hear Louis Armstrong, this is the standard way of singing in the uh, middle, late 20s. This is a guy named Eddie Walters singing Making Whoopie. Another bride, another June, another sunny honeymoon, another season, another reason for making whoopee. Now Louis Armstrong with heebie-jeebies. playing his voice it's it's like an instrument not like uh like you let's sing a song and then the guy sings making whoopee he's actually playing his instrument in his voice and it hadn't been done before and influenced as i said everybody from then on and let's get on with the game now i decided that to make this more interesting and more fun i'm not going to do these chronologically i'll just put in people willy-nilly over a period of about uh almost 40 years okay okay the setup for the game will be in three parts I'll play a song by a singer next I'll give a commentary and tell you who the singer was and then I'll close with another selection by that singer and then I'll say something like next and do the same thing again with another singer so how about this Carmen McRae. 
Carmen McRae had a really successful career that lasted about 50 years. And she started out up in Minton's Playhouse up in 118th Street in New York City in Harlem, which is the, uh, the birthplace of bebop. And she met uh, Dizzy Gillespie and a bunch of other people there. She, she played piano, sang as a chorus girl, acted as a secretary. And in 1948, she moved to Chicago, played piano steadily for almost four years at a bunch of clubs, and went back to New York City in 52. And this is from Wikipedia. In Chicago, she developed her own specific style. Those years in Chicago, McCray told Jazz Forum, gave me whatever it is that I have now. That's the most prominent schooling I ever had. And she went back to uh, New York City in the early 50s and got a record contract that launched her career. I'm not sure which company. And in 1954, she was voted Best New Female Vocalist by Downbeat Magazine. Uh, I guess she had a really close friendship with Billie Holiday and every place she played or sang. She sang at least one song of Billie Holiday's or that was associated with her. Throughout her career, she sang in jazz clubs across the U.S. and around the world. In the late 1960s, she went to Southern California, but went back to New York to play regularly, usually at the Blue Note. On November 10th, 1994, she finally succumbed to a stroke and went into a coma, and uh, she died in Beverly Hills, and that was the end of an incredibly long and, as I said, successful career. I don't think she ever wasn't popular. She had kind of a, obviously, a bebop, a little bebop style, which I can't <laughs> define, but, of course, it came from her early years uh, with uh, Dizzy Gillespie and uh, Charlie Parker and those guys. You can really hear the influence of Billie Holiday in her, in her singing, and she, she does something with melodies. She adds her own style to them. And if I'd heard more Carmen McRae in my life, which was never played in the house because it reeked, reeked of bebop, I'd be able to identify her in a second. Getting back to personal taste for a moment, uh, I don't, I'm not nuts about Carmen McRae, but this gets back completely to personal taste. She's obviously really, really a good singer. It's a style. She styled her songs a lot. She added a lot to them. And I prefer a little bit straighter performance. How can I say that when I like Billie Holiday? I just don't like what Carmen McRae does with a song. It's completely personal. Compare this to the introductory music, which I will now identify as Julie London, who sings a straight melody very clean and does nothing with it but sing and has what I consider a perfect vibrato. Carmen McRae stylizes the song and does her Carmen McRae thing. You may love her, you may not like her, but she's really great. Here's a little more Carmen McRae. Once I was a sentimental thing Threw my heart away each spring now a spring romance doesn't stand a chance Promised my first dance to winter All I've got to show's a splinter For my little fling Spring this year has got me feeling like a horse that never left the post 
I lie in my room, staring up at the ceiling. Spring can really hang you up the most. Mornings kiss wakes trees and flowers, and to them I'd like to drink a toast. Next up. Just a little bit south of North Carolina That's where I long to be In a little brown shack in South Carolina Someone waits for me In each ladder he says The weather's fine, the folks are feeling great The garden looks grand and the red rose vine Is clinging to the gate just a little bit south of North Carolina That's where my thoughts all stay To the one I love best in South Carolina I'm going back someday I can hardly wait To see the face of the one I idolize Just a little bit south of North Carolina I'll find paradise That's Anita O'Day, another really good singer who was not allowed in my home because she had her bebop tendencies. In fact, she started helped start bebop as a popular singing mode. I missed so much good music when I was a kid because of my dad's tendencies towards, you know, idolizing the swing era and big bands. And now that I'm doing this program and learning a lot about these guys. I have come to appreciate singers I never did before. Anita O'Day is one of them. I think she's really great. One of my favorites now. She was born in 1919 and proclaimed herself as a song stylist and as a hip jazz musician. She wore a band jacket instead of a skirt or evening gown. Uh, and she changed her name from uh, originally Colton to O'Day, which is pig Latin for dough or slang for money. She cited, uh, Mar <laughs> this is crazy, she cited Martha Ray as the primary influence on her vocal style, also expressing admiration for uh, Mildred Bailey and, of course, Ella, Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. She had an operation when she was a kid that uh, resulted in the accidental excision of her uvula in her throat during a tonsillectomy, and it left her incapable of vibrato, unable to maintain long phrases. And she claimed that that botched operation forced her to develop a more percussive style based on short notes and rhythmic drive. She had a lousy childhood like most, most musicians and writers and uh, painters who went on to become great artists. Uh, she became a contestant in walkathons as a dancer and toured as that in 1934 and became a professional singer out of it. And she got a job at a new club called The Offbeat. She met Gene Krupa, and Gene Krupa said, hey, if you ever, you know, if my singer ever leaves, you can join the band, which that happened in uh, 1941. And the following year, downbeat magazine readers voted her among the top five band singers. And I get this lineup. She came in fourth with Helen O'Connell first, Helen Forrest second, Billie Holiday third, and Dinah Shore fifth. Wow, who knew? And she was arrested in 1944 for marijuana possession. Marijuana is such a, God, what a devil of a drug. It's nothing. 
and yet so many people were busted for it. I think Robert Mitchum was in 1948. Uh, she joined Kenton for a while, who she said, she said Stanley helped nurture and cultivate her innate sense of chord structure, and she went back to Krupa in 46. She did some recording, 17 albums for a Verve and a Norgram between 52 and 62, and that pretty much solidified her place as a, in the pantheon of jazz. And in 1953, she was again busted for pot after smoking a joint while riding in a car. Oh my God. And she went from marijuana to alcohol after her second arrest, and her, her first thought on feeling the effects of heroin was, oh good, now I don't have to drink. And she was framed in a heroin charge, which was dropped. She was facing six years in prison. And she was released in 54. She spent most of the rest of her life performing in festivals and concerts. In 1981, uh, she wrote a book called High Times, Hard Times. And that led to a string of TV appearances, in which she spoke candidly about drug addiction. In 2006, her manager entered her in a convalescent home in West Hollywood while she recovered from pneumonia. Two days before her death, she demanded to be released from the hospital, and I guess she wasn't. And she died at age 87 in uh, 2006 in her sleep from cardiac arrest. The evening breeze caressed the trees tenderly. The trembling trees embraced the breeze tenderly. Then you and I came wandering by And lost in our sight were we The shower was kissed by sea and mist Tenderly I can't forget how two hearts met breathlessly your arms open wide and close me inside you took my lips you took my love so tenderly The evening breeze caressed the trees tenderly. The traveling trees embraced the breeze tenderly, tenderly. Okay, here's an easy one, maybe.
First you say you do, and then you don't. And then you say you will, and then you won't. You're undecided now, so what are you gonna do? As I walk down the street, seems everyone I meet gives me a friendly hello. Yes, I'm just a lucky soul and so The birds in every tree are all so neighborly They sing wherever I go I'm just a lucky soul and so It kind of depends on how much you listen to the singer and how much you know the singer's hits. That was Ella Fitzgerald. I consciously avoided her biggest hit of the time, A Tisket, A Tasket, just so you'd have something to guess about. That first uh, cut was from Chick Webb. Chick Webb was, in the early 30s, as we know from the previous programs, um, he was kind of on his way down. He was not very popular. And then somebody came along and said, you know, what you need is a, you know, a, a girl singer in front. And at his manager, somebody brought him Ella Fitzgerald, who was, you know, this kind of plump, homely woman. And Chick Webb says, I'm not going to have that in front of my band. Well, he tried her out anyway. The audience loved her, and she helped him rise to the top of the heap again, at least right up there with Benny Goodman. That was uh, undecided, of course, and the second one was it's called I'm a Lucky So-and-So with a, a little trio called the Billy, Billy Kyle Trio, whom I'm not familiar with, but they're pretty good. So how much of her background do you want? There's, I guess I'll do the early stuff. You know pretty much it's almost legend. So I'm going to save all the details of her uh, middle career later, uh, just how she started. I spent a lot of time with Anita O'Day because I thought she was very interesting. And people don't know that much about her, so I spent like four minutes on her, on the commentary. Ella Fitzgerald, I'll talk about her early career, how she got started, and up to the time she became legendary. I'm going to read a little bit from one of the uh, bio sites on the web. You know pretty much about her career after she got started. Uh, so this is some early stuff. She was born uh, in 1917 in Virginia, and uh, she died. She had a really nice long life. Died in 1996 in Beverly Hills. She had like a, a span of like 60 years for her career. As a child, she wanted to be a dancer, but she panicked evidently at an amateur contest in 1934 at the Apollo Theater, which, uh, from what I understand, has got a pretty aggressive crowd. She sang in a kind of a jazz vocal style at the time and won first prize in the contest. The following year, she joined Chick Webb. Webb became the guardian of Fitzgerald, Ella Fitzgerald, when her mother died. Her first recording was Love and Kisses, 1935, and her first hit was the ever-popular artist, good a task, good a green and yellow basket, right? Followed 1938. Webb died in 39, and she led his band until it broke up in 1942. Then she soloed in cabarets and theaters and toured internationally. 
with everybody, Goodman, Armstrong, Ellington, the Mills Brothers, the Ink Spots, Dizzy Gillespie, and she recorded pro uh, prolifically. During much of her career, she's been noted for singing and recording novelty songs, which I'm sure helped her popularity with the public. Her status rose dramatically in the 50s when jazz impres impresario Norman Grants became her manager. On the eight years from 56 to 64, she recorded a 19-volume series of songbooks, 19 volumes, in which she interpreted nearly 250 outstanding songs by Richard Rogers, Cole Porter, and everybody else. Uh, this, combined with the best jazz instrumental support, clearly demonstrated her remarkable interpretive skills. Although her diction was excellent, her rendition of lyrics was intuitive rather than studied. She was the attraction, star attraction to Philharmonic tours, and she's one of the one of the best jazz vocal recording artists in history. And she was in a few movies, Pete Kelly's Blues. You guys got to see that, and in concert halls throughout the world and so forth. One thing I notice about her, I'm really into vibrato. I don't know if, do you know what vibrato is when I'm talking about that? Well, the, f the formal definition is a musical effect consisting of regular pulsating changes of pitch. It adds expression to vocal instrumental music. The vibrato of a stringed instrument and wind instrument is actually an imitation of that vocal function. It can be learned, and it's also some people seem to have a natural way of creating a vibrato in their voice. But a vibrato is very difficult to control, and if it's forced, you end up singing like a lot of people I can't stomach in the 1950s. Like, uh, well, I won't mention any names besides K-Star and uh, Teresa Brewer. <clears throat> and the most repulsive example of bad vibrato is when you, you'll see it, if you get a close-up of some singers, their mouths actually vibrate. They, they move their mouths really fast to imitate a vibrato. My God. So what's an example of what it sounds like? Here are two good examples uh, directly from a little YouTube video. First, uh, and a voice. And on a violin by moving the fingers uh, rapidly along the string up and down to create a different uh, pitch. Now, in a human voice, that is very difficult to control. I think it takes a little bit of uh, natural ability and practice to, to get the vibrato you want. And that's, there's, a, there's the rub. What kind of vibrato do you want? If you want a really wide vibrato, uh, it'll stand out and that becomes sort of part of your style. If you just want to enhance the sound of the music, then you end up with somebody like Julie London or Ella Fitzgerald. And conversely, if you want to use it as kind of a gimmick because you think the audience likes it, which they did, you end up with a K-Star or a Teresa Brewer. Okay. okay, I had to throw that in because it occurred to me that I'm using a term that a lot of people aren't that familiar with. And Ella Fitzgerald's vibrato is, it's almost kind of muted in the background. You could tell Ella Fitzgerald just by that. And I can't quite get enough of this, so I'm going to put in two more tunes. She has such a beautiful voice. Here are The Man I Love and But Not For Me.
do my best to make him stay. He'll look at me and smile, I'll understand. And in a little while, he'll take my hand. And though it seems absurd, I know we both won't say a word. Maybe I shall meet him Sunday, maybe Monday, maybe night. Still, I'm sure to meet him one day, maybe Tuesday will be my. Good news day He'll build a little home Just meant for two From which I'll never roll Who would, would you And so all else above I'm waiting for the man see why. Okay, now for something completely different. I'd ask you to guess, but I'm not that mean. The worried songbird cries out in the forest. Her thoughts go far away. The worried songbird cries out in the forest. Her thoughts go far away. For those of us who have no father, her thoughts go out to them. Her thoughts go far away. Jorole kononi kantu 
Njorole Kononimi Njorole Kononimi a song from Mali, which is a small country in West Africa, kind of the what uh, is called the crown, the crown jewel of music in Africa, and the singer is Omu Sangari, and she's kind of like a superstar. Mali seems to be the most civilized, advanced country across Central Africa, and the person playing the stringed instrument, which is a banjo, is named Bella, B-E-L-A, Fleck. He's uh, like the best, the premier bluegrass player in the world, and I really like him. Bluegrass is, bluegrass is in a category all of its own. It's an awful lot of improvisation, 
a lot of polyphony, people playing different things at the same time. Is it jazz? No, but the improvisational aspect of it really uh, knocks me out. Uh, this guy plays tremendous... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but he plays tremendous banjo. He does amazing things on it. And what he did, he got together with this uh, singer, Omu Sangari, and uh, just accompanied her. I think I don't know whether they practiced together first or not, but he played along with her, sort of improvising as he went and enhancing what she was singing. And I gave you the words to the song before it started. Uh, I really like this. It's, I think she has a beautiful voice. It's completely different from what we've been listening to, but I, I had to throw this in, partly because I really like it, and partly because it's good, and partly just to uh, <laughs> just to introduce you to something really different. There, there's music all over the world. It's it's really great. That it just doesn't. It sounds so foreign to the ear, to the uh, you know the 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 Western European ear, and I think it's worth getting used to so we can enjoy it. The same thing's true like of Indian music. Ravi Shankar, for example, and Ali Akbar Khan and uh, Allah Raka and Tabla. I got into that back in the late 60s when it was popular. And I still, I love in, classical Indian music on the sitar. When people talk about liking all kinds of music. Really? You think they'd like this? Or Indian music? So they like a certain type of music and uh, that's what they're stuck in. And I'm not. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty open to things. Okay, getting back to, uh, what was the theme of this? Uh, oh yeah, jazz singers. That's right, jazz singers. Okay, back to the game. When you sigh, never in my wordland could there be ways to reveal in a phrase how I feel. Have you ever heard two turtle doves, Bill and Coo, when they love? That's the kind of magic music we make with our lips when we kiss. And there's a weepy old willow. He really knows how to cry That's how I'd cry on my pillow If you should tell me farewell and goodbye Lullaby of birdland, whisper low Kiss me sweet and we'll go Flying high in birdland, high in the sky up above All because we're in love That is Sarah Vaughan, and uh, sooner or later I had to throw in Lullaby of Birdland, <laughs> which is really catchy and a really neat tune. So here's some things from uh, an American Masters from PBS uh, video. I'm just going to read this because it pretty well sums up everything. Jazz critic Leonard Feather called her the most important singer to emerge from the bop era. An interjection here, uh, when I was a kid, I heard this expression many, many times gone like Sarah Vaughan. In other words, it was uh, way beyond it was way beyond the swing era that was prevalent at her home. She was kind of like out there. And I don't think she's out there now. Of course, this is hindsight, you know, like 50 years later, 60 years later. Ella Fitzgerald called her the world's greatest singing talent. During the course of, of a career that spanned nearly 50 years, she was the singer's singer, influencing everyone from Mel Torme to Anita Baker. 
She was among the most musical elite identified by their first names. She was Sarah, Sassy, the incomparable Sarah Vaughan. Uh, she was born in 1924 was immediately surrounded by music. Her father was a carpenter and an amateur guitarist, and her longest mother was a church vocalist. She studied piano from the age of seven and before entering her teens had become an organist and church soloist at the Mountain Zion Baptist Church. At 18, her friends dared her to enter the famed Wednesday night amateur contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Remember, that's a, the very aggressive audience that uh, Ella Fitzgerald was afraid to dance in front of. She gave a sizzling rendition of Body and Soul and won first prize. And the audience that night was singer Billy Eckstein, whom we'll hear from in a couple shows. Six months later, she had joined Eckstein and Earl Hines' big band along with jazz legends Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. And, of course, that was bebop world. When Eckstein formed his own band soon after, Vaughn went with him. Others, including Miles Davis and Art Blakey, were eventually to join the band as well. Within a year, however, Vaughn wanted to give a solo career a try. By late 1947, she had topped the charts with Tenderly, and as the 1940s gave way to the 50s, Vaughn expanded her jazz repertoire to include pop music. As a result, she enlarged her audience, of course, gained increased attention for her formidable talent, and compiled additional hits, including the Broadway show tunes Whatever Lola Wants and Mr. Wonderful. While jazz purists balked at these efforts, no one could deny that in any genre, Vaughn had one of the greatest voices in business. And from Wikipedia, on a little more personal level, Sarah Vaughn said, I don't know why people call me a jazz singer, though I guess people associate me with jazz because I was raised in it from way back. I'm not putting jazz down, but I'm not a jazz singer. I've recorded all kinds of music, but to them, I'm either a jazz singer or a blues singer. I can't sing a blues, just a right-out blues, but I can put the blues in whatever I sing. I might sing Send in the Clowns, and I might stick a little bluesy part in it or any song. What I want to do music-wise is all kinds of music that I like, and I like all kinds of music. In 1989, her health began to decline, and she canceled a series of engagements in Europe in that year. And during a run at New York's Blue Note Jazz Club in that year, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and was too ill to finish the last day of what would turn out to be her final series of public, public performances. She returned to her home in California to begin chemotherapy and spent her final months alternating stays in the hospital and at home. She grew weary of the struggle and demanded to be taken home, where at 66 she died on the evening of April 3, 1990, while watching a television movie featuring her daughter. I'm not sure why she had this reticence about being called a jazz singer, I guess because she wanted to appeal to a wider audience, and she did enjoy singing different types of music, so. That's Sarah Vaughan, and you either love her or ignore her, as we did when I was growing up. But she had a really nice voice, and I'm sorry I didn't uh, listen to more of her, but I was trained not to. You're me to me, why must you be me to me? Gee, honey, it seems to me, you love to see me crying. I don't know why I stay home 
Each night when you say you'll phone You don't then I'm left alone Singing the blues and crying You treat me coldly Each day in the year You always scold me Whenever somebody is near, dear It must be great fun to be me to me You shouldn't fall, can't you see What you mean to me And now, how about this? The leaves of brown came tumbling down, remember, in September, in the rain. The sun went out just like a dying ember, that September. In the rain To every word of love I heard you whisper The raindrops seemed to play a sweet refrain Though spring is here, to me it's still September that September in the rain in the rain in the rain it's still September Yeah, I thought I'd close this program the way I started it. That was uh, Julie London again. Something a little more up-tempo. I have to say that I went through about uh, at least a dozen of her albums on Amazon. And I had a heck of a time finding a good recording. Because most of what they did with her was uh, try to enhance her performance with these, you know, pseudo-lush arrangements and that kind of showed off the orchestra with her featured, but they kind of, you know, like overpowered the recording. My God, the, the 1950s, except for some things that were happening in the background that led to the 60s, was really musically an awful decade. I got to play a couple things. That It was all about bigger is better and a larger orchestra. High fidelity was... Uh, and people were buying more expensive equipment. It was, you could call it the decade of the audiophile, where the frame was more important than what you saw out the window or what you listened to through the window. I'm gonna play shortcuts of a couple monstrosities that developed as recording studios aimed to let people show off their equipment.
wasn't that awful. The first mess was uh, Billy May, who did a lot of arranging, a lot for TV. And the second monstrosity was Enoch Light, who went by the name Enoch Light and the Light Brigade. And it was all like a showpiece for equipment. Wow, listen to that. There's the left speaker, the right speaker. Listen to what's coming out of there. It's highly percussive noise. And I was dealing with a lot of this, not to that extreme, uh, looking for Julie London recordings. Today, we're dealing with the opposite situation where all people care about is what they hear through the window. And the window is very small. And the frame doesn't matter at all. Through uh, MP3 compression, MP3 files, much of the quality of the music, the highs and a lot of the bass are lost, but people don't care because, for one thing, the spectacle of the performer matters more than the sound of the performer, and the loudness of the music overwhelms <laughs> whatever is being played anyway. And finally, lyrics have replaced musicianship, and that's a whole other story, lyrics. So today, instead of Clipshorn or Sirwin Vegas speakers, we have Sony and Apple earbuds. Okay, so much for my sound quality rant. Back to Julie, Julie London. Julie London sings the Marlboro song. Why don't you settle back, settle back. and have a full-flavored smoke? Settle back. That's one way to remember her, but the fact is she had an amazing career. She was um, not only a singer, she was an actress too, and a decent one. She had a starring role in uh, the series Emergency as uh, head nurse Dixie McCall, but that was her last acting role, and when when the show was canceled, she retired. I'm going to read a little bit from my uh, a bio page from the web. A sultry, smoky-voiced master of understatement, Julie London enjoyed considerable popularity during the cool era of the 1950s. London never had the range of Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughan, but often used restraint, softness, and subtlety to maximum advantage. An actress as well as a singer, London played with heavyweights like Gregory Peck and Rock Hudson in various films and was married to Jack Webb of Dragnet fame for seven years before marrying songwriter Bobby Troop, who wrote the theme for Route 66. London performed her biggest hit, Crimea River, in the Jane Mansfield film, The Girl Can't Help It. After recording her last album, Yummy, 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 in 1969, my God, She continued to act, playing a nurse, on the medical drama Emergency from 1974 to 1978. Despite her sex symbol image, London was known for her sexy LP covers, which made them collector's items. She was surprisingly shy and left showbiz altogether in the late 1970s. In the mid-90s, London suffered a stroke, which led to a half-decade of poor health and ultimately contributed to her death on October 18, 2000. Okay, decision time. I've decided to make two more shows on singers because of the music, the length of the music I'm playing. I want to play fairly long selections to really give you and me a good sample of what these people are capable of. I'll finish up female singers next time, and the last show will be male singers. To give you a preview, this is the plan. We haven't covered 
Billy Holiday, who's too big a topic to put into the remainder of this show, Peggy Lee, Blossom Deary, Nancy Wilson, Dinah Washington, even Kay Starr, and Teresa Brewer. The last two for personal reasons, and you might be able to guess what those reasons are. Oh, before I forget, I didn't mention where that really cool African music uh, came from. Bella Fleck, the bluegrass player, went to Africa to document African music and to play and to play with them. And the documentary film that came out of that is called Throw Down Your Heart. And you can find it on YouTube, which is where I got it. So let's close with a musician from the next show. And it will be a mystery, mystery singer. And see if you can guess who. And if you don't know, you'll find out next show. So again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. This is that once in a lifetime This is the thrill divine What's more This never happened As you would suddenly be mine, mine to hold as I.